The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So again, thanks for making it out this morning in our winter wonderland. One of the beautiful things about living up north is this spell a new snowstorm casts on our city. Isn't it nice? Just uh, in a funny way, it takes the edge off, this softness of the snow. Even the sound of the city changes a little bit when you have that soft snow absorbing all the sound. So we've been looking, for those who haven't been coming, we've been looking at the Buddhist teachings on path. And as the Buddha described in you know these ancient discourses that have been passed down one generation after another, he didn't claim in any way to discover this sort of way of working with our lives. He described it as if he had uncovered something that had been revealed many times before. And it's it's basically you know, understanding how useful, how transforming it is for human beings to emphasize the stability of present moment awareness, how everything begins to change. Because, the you know, as a human, we go from somebody who's mostly operating on autopilot, the force of habit, which, as we all know, we picked up these habits through culture, through our homes that we were raised in. And so there's a lot of, you know, superficiality and a lot of delusion and a lot of just the limitations of human fear and all the baggage we have around difference, the kind of biases we have all programmed in through our hearts and mind. And then if we don't have this, a practice like this, you know, this deep, Valuing, valuing of present moment awareness, then the tendency for a human being, as I said, is just to act out, to live out of our habits. And most of the time, most of us, that's what we're doing. We're living out of habits. And it looks like we're a human being, but we're really just, th- there's no of that moral reflection, oh, this is what I'm setting in motion for myself and my own heart and reverberating in those hearts around me who are affected by how I'm showing up in this moment. There's just no space for that, uh, you could say, karmic ownership. Like, okay, here I am relating, showing up to this moment in this way and this is what's getting, this is the impression that's being left in my heart. This is what I sense is the impressions that's being left around me. So we, I've been talking these last months now since uh, the new year that the path begins when a human understands, you know, I'm beginning to think it matters how I'm showing up in the world. So we'd say, Somebody who doesn't have that sense that it matters is somebody who doesn't, you could say, doesn't have 
what we might consider a spiritual life. They're too overwhelmed, they're too busy, they're too whatever, distracted. To just have that personal awakening, that initial awakening, oh, who I am, how I am, how I'm showing up, how I'm behaving, even how I'm thinking matters. It matters for sure because I see directly in terms of the sensitivity of my own heart, I feel like when I'm acting, behaving, thinking in this way, there's a direct, you know, something is left over. So it's not, not someone telling me that it matters. I can sense directly that it matters. And I can sense indirectly by observing, if I care enough to observe and feel into the impression or what's getting set in motion in my family, you know, like when we're home and we're in this kind of funk, what is getting planted in my kids or my cat or my partner or the people I live with or the people I work with, people I hang around with? It matters. And the more we study how it matters, we, we sort of uncover these ancient truths that human beings have been discovering that stinginess and discontentment, you know, the uneasiness of discontentment, the uneasiness of greed, wanting things to be different, being stingy, hoarding, like that doesn't lead to happiness. Totally understandable in moments to be stingy, but we don't want to lie to ourselves. That doesn't lead to happiness. Ill will, anger, aggression, violence, harming others, justifying that harm, killing other living beings, doesn't lead to happiness. Again, in moments, it can appear really justified, you know, to protect others or whatever. But the fact is, it leaves the impression that it leaves. And we can figure that out for ourselves, like when we are aggressive. There's this wonderful poem that I got. I don't know if it was from Shelley. Shelley's a big fan of Nikki Giovanni, um, a wonderful poet who she ran into in the airport and immediately invited her to come to Common Ground. <laughs> She's older now, so I don't know how much she travels. It's a sweet little poem about non-harming. I killed a spider, not a murderous brown recluse or even a black widow. And if the truth were told, this was only a small sort of papery spider who should have run when I picked up the book, but she didn't, and she scared me, and I smashed her. I don't think I'm allowed to kill something because I'm frightened. And that's the poignant truth. I mean, it's totally understandable that we get surprised and that, you know, we might smash something. But we want, as a, somebody who's waking up, I think it matters how I am, who I am, how I'm showing up in the world, then we want to check well, what's left over, given that that just happened? What's left over? And the same way, if we felt the fear, we felt the impulse to smash, but we refrained from doing that, and then just to ask, what's left over? You know, And maybe we even caught the spider and we took it away from the side of our bed and we found a better place for it, you know, like this is your part of the house or 
This is your part of the outside of the house. <laughs> and, and then like, well, what's left over? And so instead of having a fixed idea of morality, like what's acceptable, what's not okay, based on some outside standard, we're really learning, because we know it matters, and it's our own sensitive heart that's taught us that it matters, so then that becomes our guide. And you see how it really promotes the deepening of the value of awareness, of the sensitivity of being open, continuously, mindfully aware, because we know, we learn, I need this sensitivity, this present moment awareness to navigate my life, to live in a way that leads toward a greater release instead of living in a way that leads to greater weight and entanglement and heaviness. So this whole movement into the practice is a natural, not even a personal thing. It arises initially when a human being has enough space in their life to recognize it matters how I'm living and then uses whatever awareness, mindful awareness they have to begin to discern how it matters, like what leaves a heavy impression, what leads a life, a light impression, a released heart, and then to basically take it into the world of action. Okay, I have to act, I have to engage. What seems to help? What seems to harm? I have to speak. What seems to help? What seems to harm? I have to earn a living, find a way to survive, take care of my kids or whatever. What seems the most uh, useful, helpful way that doesn't come with a lot of heaviness? What ways of earning my living, finding my way, makes the heart, my heart and other hearts, really heavy? And so you see how that, we always wonder like how, how is it natural for human beings to care about everybody else's well-being? But see, this is the thing. When we're aware, right, like you can even do it now at this room, like when we're aware how much it matters, what kind of impression I leave in my own heart, like how painful it is when we do something stupid and really harm somebody we love, you know, because we weren't thinking or we acted out some not-so-skillful habit that got triggered, and then there it was. We said what we probably shouldn't have said to the person we love most, and now there's this breach in the relationship that we deeply feel. We don't want it to be. We wish we hadn't, but we did say what we said, right? And then we feel like that can really, really hurt. Even simple things that we, you know, like walking into the kitchen at night and stepping on the cat's foot, you know. And then it's like, it, you know, and then it, the cat doesn't want to be around us for a day or half a day or something. And then that, even something as simple and understandable as being a little bit distracted when it was you know, wasn't a lot of light in the kitchen or when you were kind of scrambling to do something and you step backwards and there the cat was. But it can, it can really hurt. Even something as justifiable as that can really hurt, let alone when we intentionally, because of the force of habit, wanted to harm somebody. You know, we were just being nasty or 
you know, how we can be passive-aggressive or all the different ways we shoot darts when it on the surface it looks clean. But, you know, we really want something to sting for somebody, and then it does. And then we realize what we did, and then we feel it, right? And so the more we value the sensitivity of the heart, then the more everything matters. Even seemingly things that we were completely oblivious to, like the things we buy at the store and how that got there and who was oppressed or who was whatever in getting that carpet to my store that I purchased or that food to my store that I purchased. Everything starts to matter. Like when we buy into a neighborhood, you know, all of a sudden, because our heart's sensitive, we, we start to, you know, notice things. Like, who's not in the neighborhood, and how did that come to be? You know, and all the reverberations of our lives, starts, we start to feel. And that's how, you know, we don't have to uh, pretend, or it isn't a should, or we should care about these things, like injustice, sexism, racism, economic injustice, how people are being taken advantage of, it comes naturally when we cultivate the sensitivity. Everything starts to land and is felt. And when we, you know, when that tendency is to come back to our bubbles of not noticing, it's felt in the heart as a weight. Needing to not know is a heavy state. In the heart, I don't want to know. It's too complex. It's, t- you know, I've got enough on my plate. No, I'm not saying that those attitudes don't seem to make sense in our mind. I'm just saying that as we cultivate a sensitive heart, harming even in these less obvious ways, ways that are easy to ignore, they start to be felt. And we become that kind of person who cares and is willing, more and more at least, to listen and to put stuff on the table so that it's like the last thing we want to do, because it's so painful, is to be surprised by how we've been causing harm. So then we're actually valuing looking where we don't normally look, like how we're complicit, because it's so painful (laughs) <laughs> I mean, this is, an, this is something that we've been finding out in our community as uh, some of us white people in particular have been getting interested in looking at racism and just how, you know, these biases exist in our hearts. And it's really painful. It feels good to do the work, but it's painful to realize that it's not those other white people that have a problem, right? But that this person does too. Because we see it. We see how this heart-mind has been conditioned by culture. Oh, oh my goodness. And that waking up is really painful. It's the right thing to do. It feels good to do it, but it's unpleasant. So you see, when we see that, whether it's around sexism and how we've been conditioned around gender, around race, around class, any number of ways, these spectrums of difference, all of us are affected by in our own ways, in our own kind of ways we've been conditioned, then we don't want to be surprised anymore. So even that, like, 
why would a human being you know, undertake these different kinds of studies and trainings? It's because we don't want to be surprised. It's so painful. We don't want to realize that we've been living in ways that have been causing harm. And we just assumed it wasn't me, it wasn't about me. So we start to pay attention, we start to study more, we start to listen, we start to ask questions to ourselves and others. Because we don't, we're no longer comfortable pretending it's not my problem. Or, you know, this isn't about me. And this is the path of freedom. So this is this area we've been looking at these last few weeks, this area of sila, or deep resonant valuing of non-harming. And it's really how, like, this is what wisdom needs to develop. We need to engage these more messy areas of our life around power, around survival, around, you know, just how we relate to each other, how culture works, how society, our communities operate. Because we're already engaged in these, but now we're waking up and we want to know how does it feel you know, to be here now relating in this way. And we're not just pretending we're seeing everything. Instead, we know we're not seeing everything. So you see how that values listening, that humility. Okay, so I'm, I haven't been reading everything. I haven't been sensing everything, feeling everything. So now we're really valuing this, this willingness to um, rely more and more on the sensitivity of a heart. Oh, that, I don't know what it is, but the heart's, you know, feeling something. So it's not like, you know, you get a clear message telling you exactly what is going on. We just sort of generally know. I mean, this is the the emotional system is very good information system, but it's not specific <laughs> as we know. So what it does is it tells us like, all I know is I'm not uh, sensing, I'm sensing something and I don't know what it is. So that that makes me want to be more sensitive and listen and not rush to conclusion. What's going on here? What I'm not seeing? How's suffering moving here? How am I part of that? Because I care. And it's not like we should expect. See, this is part of the old way <clears throat> is we just want to get done with this moral work so we know we're on the right side of the equation I'm a good person again. Uh, finally, I don't have to be sensitive anymore. That's what we want. But what we want to realize instead that I'm okay being sensitive and I'm, o- I'm okay being a learner. I don't ever expect to be done with this work. Where does it end? Because we live in a world where it's definitely all about power, right? The bigger, more powerful species take advantage of the less. I mean, even in the even if you're a vegan, you know, there's still this dominance going on where we're dominating the plants and the smaller creatures that get in the way of our growing plants. I mean, there's just no end to harm. Life is eating life. That's kind of our realm here on the planet. But that doesn't mean that valuing non-harming 
isn't in the direction of freedom and ignoring, pretending that this sensitive heart doesn't care isn't in the direction of weight, psychic pain. So that's the interesting and in a way beautiful dilemma that we live in this world where life eats life, where power, you know, is, you know, power rules, you know, in all of the ways that power plays itself out in our intimate relationships, in our society. It's always about that. Even democratic systems are about how power moves. Just different ways that power is doing what power does. It makes stuff happen. And things that are in the way of making stuff happen then are less powerful. And so they don't get their way. So that's, that's how we live And then there's this deep valuing of non-harming. And it's that beautiful tension between the sort of reality of survival and how power moves and a human being valuing the impression, the impressions left on the sensitive heart. That's this spiritual life, you could say. And so what kind of understanding, what kind of intentions what kind of actions and speech and ways of earning, you know, surviving, earning a li- uh, livelihood actually makes sense in this tension of living on this planet as an animal who wants to survive, but who is uncovered and has learned to value this sensitive heart that feels like when greed, when anger is acted out, hatred is acted out, violence is acted out, when the heart is complicit with harming, it's felt. Whether we want that to be true or not, the question is, is it true that we feel? Like when you, when you get rid of ants on your kitchen sink by smashing them or washing them down the drain, and I'm not judging, I'm just using that as an example, like, do, are we willing to ask ourselves the question, well, how did that feel? You know, what is the feeling left over? Or any number of other sort of ordinary moral acts that we are unavoidably involved in. Because when we use the money that has come our way in the ways that we use it, that means we're not supporting not giving it other places where other people might use it. And there's no way around that truth. <laughs> I mean, that's just the way it is. You know, when we keep money saved in a bank, it means it's not being used for other sources. And so this is that unavoidable tension. And even if you're someone like says, okay, I'm going to give all my money away and then I'm going to commit suicide. See, and I'm not saying this is true, but I, I'm saying it may be skillful to think that it's true or to live as if it's true that that still leaves an impression on your heart. And maybe that heart, that mind stream, takes rebirth, right? Thinking, like, I'll be clever. I don't like this moral tension of having to live as a human being when everything matters, so I'm going to check out. Well, how does that feel in your heart, right? Because that might be a heavy impression, too. And that may be setting in motion other heavy impressions 
in people's hearts. So even like, oh, I don't want this moral tension. You know, how can I get away from this? I'll be a hermit, you know. <laughs> we used to joke back, I used to do a lot of intensive yogic practices. And there was, <laughs> I don't know if there was anybody really believed it, but there was this sort of idea that there were breath Aryans. I don't know if anybody heard this. People who are, their bodies have become so ethereal that they can just live, they just take a, mmm, that was good. Now I'm full for a while. I'll take another breath a little later, have my dinner. You know, and it's like, don't quite step on the earth, so, you know, not to crush anything. And, you know, this idea that we can be a human being without having, you know, sexuality or not having to eat, not having to poop. And it can seem like, oh, that's the way. If only I weren't human, then I'd be happy. Well, that's the easy, first of all, it's not possible, of course, because we are human. But the more interesting spiritual question is how to be human and be free. Not how to fantasize about not being human and not cause harm or not, you know, leave a wake of suffering, but how to be a human being and not leave a wake of suffering in my own heart and in others' others' hearts. That's a very interesting and enlivening question. And you'll see that you get a lot of energy from that question as we live our lives. So I just wanted to, you know, as we're kind of working on this, uh, I'll I'll be uh, leading a retreat next weekend. So I think Gene Haley will be teaching in the morning. Um, But I'll come back to wise speech the following Sunday. And uh, but you can just remember these ten ways to kind of ten places to wake up. So around causing harm, destroying life, around taking what hasn't been given, right? So just whenever we're using something, we're just interested in what are the reverberations in my heart and everybody else's heart when I use something, when I eat something, when I claim this is mine, what reverberations and am I willing to own, feel all those reverberations whenever we consume something or possess something. And again, panicking about that is a way of causing ourselves harm. So how to find that way where we're really taking care of our life and curious about the reverberations. The third is around sense pleasures, sexuality as one of them, but any sense pleasures. So as we allow that ordinary joy of sense pleasure to land in whatever ways we can, it's, it's available to us, you know, what are the implications of receiving the sense pleasure? What does it feel like? When I know all the reverberations, what does it feel like in the heart? What's the trace or what's left over? Because it doesn't feel good if we've had to take advantage of somebody, cause harm to somebody to get some sense pleasure. And then 
The next four around speech, why speech? So when we intentionally speak a falsehood or we limit the truth, you know, shade the truth in some way, how does that feel? Or when we use even the truth, so maybe we're actually speaking the truth, but we're using it to slander or cause harm, like as a weapon. Well, take this, and we say something to our partner, you know, to sort of put them in their place or to make them feel badly. Harsh speech, so we're even our body language and the tone of our voice as a way of, you know, dominating or just, being seen in a way that can cause harm, as opposed to being sensitive to what our speech, how it's landing in the moment. And even idle speech, talking about things that don't need to be talked about, filling up space just because we're afraid of being alone, you know, we're kind of talking, 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 and just like, well, how does that feel? I didn't actually ask that person if they had 15 minutes to hear me do that. What does that feel like? So one is of action, then a speech. And even the third category of wholesome, unwholesome action is just in terms of our thoughts, like even taking responsibility for how I might be stewing in a particular way. So stewing with greediness. Oh, I like that. I wonder how I could get that. Like what trace does that leave for me? And even people who are sensitive, they might just sort of, pick up the space, the kind of psychic space I'm in. Or I might be stewing with anger and self-righteousness. Well, I'm in a way definitely contaminating my own heart, but maybe even contaminating the wider space. And whatever we're sort of stewing with, like wrong view too, just diluted and, you know, whatever self-view, self-drama we might be obsessing around, it makes it so much easier. Have you noticed like when somebody is totally self-involved, <laughs> it's like we immediately, I see this even in my relationship, you know. It's, it's like this spiritual humor where, you know, I'll catch myself thinking, you know, for I won't catch the oh, poor me, but I'll catch this sort of judgmental, oh, my partner, you know, self-absorbed, i.e., not giving me the attention I want, right? And I'll stew in a very self-absorbed way in that. And then eventually, hopefully, I mean, I catch it when I catch it, like how self-absorbed that is. You know, how definitely not available to connecting with this human being as a real human being who might want that intimate or actual connection because I'm absorbed in my idea that she's absorbed. Right? <laughs> and we get this way, you know, this is really big in politics these days where we're sort of, we get full of anger and judgment and putting people in bubbles, you know, condemning them because that's what we think they're doing to us. But we don't see we're doing, a, you know, the same version or a version of the same thing. So this taking responsibility. So these are the 10 courses of wholesome and unwholesome action, right? So outward action, directly causing harm with our actions, taking things that aren't ours, 
uh, indulging in sense pleasures in way that, ways that cause harm. And then the four ways of using speech, skillfully and unskillfully, truth versus falsehood, using speech as a weapon to harm versus using speech as a way of bringing people together, increasing healing and understanding, using speech harshly, loudly, in ways you know, that, that sort of calling attention to ourselves or dominating the moment as opposed to being more sensitive about our power, like when we're speaking. And like, is, it, is that power being used appropriately? Because a mother or a father might need to scream at a certain moment to keep their child from doing something. So there are definitely times when that loud, harsh, whatever kind of voice might be needed. But we can misuse that. And then the fourth is idle speech. Is it helpful? Is it an improvement on silence, the speech? Or is it just filling up space in a way that keeping everybody from being in the moment because we're filling up space with idle speech? And then the even taking responsibility for the activity of our thought. Covetous thought, greedy thoughts, aversive thoughts, deluded thoughts. Oh, yeah. That is also leaving an impression in my heart and probably in the space around me. So you can just use these 10 areas to... You know, just resolving activity of the mind, activity of speech, activity of our outward actions, and be interested, well, what, what's being left behind? What impression here in my heart and in anybody else's heart? What Was it a wholesome contribution, how I just showed up? Or was it a heavy contribution? So we have a little time before the kids come. It would be nice to hear from one or two of you, your own reflections, what you've been learning in this regard in your lives. Uh, Questions, of course, what comes to mind? We are recording this morning, just so you know. Yeah, Andrew, you want to start us off? Behind Zenzelay. Um, hi, I'm Andrew, and uh, I really loved what you said about uh, the switch to like realizing that we're not seeing everything um and just one thing that's been really interesting to me lately is how like even like with like especially with that realization and then like after there's a value like toward seeing how like the habit of resisting things like can still exist very strongly on like a a sort of physical habitual level and it's just been interesting to see that tension when there's like I can see that I'm resisting something and I don't necessarily know what. And it's, it's just that question of like, what is, what is here that's being resisted? But it's, I don't know, it is, it has such a strong momentum. Like even when the mind like wants to see the body's like, nope. <laughs> yeah. And, and what really helps is we, to whatever degree the heart has some intuition around real freedom that provides an enlivening energy because the reason we we retreat to our habits is we have a strong idea that life is hard. And so I can't handle anymore. You know, it's, it's a very pervasive, oh, poor me. And this path of awakening is liberating. It's not heavy. But it takes some energy. We have to feel safe enough to feel, to relax be undefended so we can feel and we sense 
that by paying attention in this way, we have the possibility of moving in the direction of release. But it takes some energy, non, not being so oppressed by life, to even sense this possibility. So we have to be good at touching in to energy, to wholesome energy, to beauty and goodness that's accessible in our lives. We need wholesome friends. We need wholesome activities. We need a wholesome place, places like Common Ground where we go and it's relatively wholesome and our heart feels a little less oppressed, maybe, for some of you, hopefully, for moments. So we can really sense when the heart is a little bit less defended, less heavy, we sense, oh yeah, I see this I see this as a path, this willingness to be sensitive because it matters and because it's in the direction of real happiness. Because otherwise it, it is hard. Initially we're asking ourselves to be attentive. And you know how it is. We feel exhausted. I don't want to be, I want to watch a stupid TV show, you know, or just go to sleep or have a few drinks or I want to deaden. I don't want to move towards sensitivity, right? Isn't that often when we're tired, when we're a little fried because life has been hard, there's a strong instinct to want to deaden the mind and heart. And the difference now when, and you'll see this in life, over time as you develop your practice, you'll gravitate less and less toward those habits you might have had earlier in your life to overdrink, to overuse drugs, or any way to overuse entertainments, media. And not that we don't do it. And when we do do it, it will be sort of counterproductive, like I did it because of the force of habit, but I realized it didn't really work. You know, And it's hard because we don't have complete confidence in the new way, which is being a really sensitive being, but the old way is no longer working for us in the same way that it might have. And we can feel a little trapped, which is why it's also good to have friends who are interested, what you're interested in, because it, they can normalize this sort of difficult middle ground. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Hello, my name's Tim Foss. Um, the question I have comes from this last one about, you know, kind of building towards the way sensitivity can provide a kind of relief. Um, I, I'm struck by the idea of the binary you set up. Like, life is hard is one kind of narrative, but the other narrative is that life is full of suffering and sometimes I guess they can easily be conflated, right? Like is hard is a hard life a life of suffering or is the understanding of a life that's suffering actually a sort of release? And this is the kind of liberation or the sensitivity maybe we're looking for. And if I were to try to give an example that helps me maybe kind of frame the way I'm asking a question 
they would be relevant is that when I'm dealing with a lot of conflict with my son, um, he triggers me into the all states of angry, you know, mindsets. And the more I move into kind of just letting myself feel like it's just a, it's just breaks my heart. The situation that we're in again, the situation of not being able to resolve it, the situation of not being a father that knows how to soothe, you know, an angry kid in a moment like that. Um, I think what I'm wondering about is like, is this, is this kind of what we're hoping for from sensitivity is just the ability to see it all, even if it's completely overwhelming and not yeah. getting resolved, you know? Yeah, no, and I really appreciate you giving that real example, and I'm sure a lot of the parents in the room appreciate it too. And it's such a good example of what we've been talking about today. So we can, you know, even those of us who haven't raised kids have been around kids and know they're not deserving of my anger, but here it is. I mean, in the big picture, at least, they're not deserving of my anger. They're just being kids, but here it is, right? And then the question is, we could fall back on habit energy, which is, I'm bigger than you, so it's going to be my way, or something like that. Uh, it's not okay what you're doing, or something like that. Or we could realize that um, it may be true that it should be this way, but the anger isn't helpful. And I'm sensitive enough in this moment, I'm, I have enough integrity that I want to own that although it makes sense to me, that I'm angry, it isn't helping. It will only make the situation worse. Uh, worse. So then there's that tension, like, here I am, I'm angry. I know it's not helping. I don't have another way. And the question I think you're asking, or one of the questions you're asking, is that a step in the right direction? And I think the answer is, yeah. It's better to know I'm angry and it's not helping and I don't know what else to do than to fall back into habit, which is, I'm angry and I deserve to be angry. The kid deserves my anger. And I'm going to use this anger to go forward. right? Because that ambiguity of knowing that I'm angry, knowing that it's not appropriate, that can allow for some creative solution. Even if it's you saying to the kid, depending on their age, daddy's really angry and I don't know what to do about it. Let's go to our corners and we'll deal with this maybe in 15 minutes, you know, because that, if nothing else, is real for the kid. Like you're modeling dealing with uh, emotion in a way that might be really in the long term useful for the kid. Thanks again for bringing that up. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.